Today's episode is based on works taken from the book Christian Slaves, Muslim Masters, White Slavery in the Mediterranean, the Barbary Coast, and Italy, 1500 through 1800, by Robert C. Davis. One morning in 1581, a merchant wakes up before dawn in his sleepy fishing village in southern Italy. He eats his breakfast, kisses his wife and children goodbye, and leaves for a market town several miles inland. He spends the day selling his wares at market and leaves with enough daylight to spare. As evening comes, he reaches the edge of the village. But it's quiet. Something's amiss. Tools are left in the fields from farmhands, but there's no workers. Fishing boats are right off the docks, only several hundred yards out in the bay, but no movement can be seen. In his home, food is on the table, uneaten. It's still warm. A whole village gone without a trace. And he knew exactly what happened to them. Because this was a common occurrence throughout the Mediterranean. A fishing boat would be found at sea with no one on board. A deserted village with dinner sitting, waiting on the table. A father would head out to work in the fields and never return. No letter no warning, nothing. Did they die at sea? Did they desert their family? It could take years to find out if they ever found out at all. But universally, everyone knew what had happened. Pirates. His wife, his children, his neighbors, his friends, were now somewhere in the middle of the sea, heading towards the Barbary Coast to be sold into slavery. Now this is a captivating, horrific topic. But I'll be honest, I've written and rewritten this intro literally a dozen times over. I've spent literal hours deciding how to approach it. Because Barbary Coast slavery is a compelling topic in and of itself. Whole towns and ships being spirited off without a trace to be sold into slavery and endure terrible conditions. But there's a fact here that makes it even more compelling. More volatile. Because to every American, when we think of the concept of slavery, we universally think of enslavement of black Africans by white Christian Europeans. That's our mental model. But in this case of Barbary Coast slavery, it wasn't. White Christian Europeans were being sold into slavery by North African Muslims. Now, I'm going to assume that the majority of us can stop and check our preconceived notions at the door, because the very existence of this topic in history, in current events, is explosive. But that doesn't mean that we can't be civil about discussing it. I'm not one to shy away from controversy, but this one of all the episodes we've done feels the most like I just pulled a pin on a grenade and threw it into a room. Because it's no secret that there's a lot of politics in the phrase North African Muslims enslaving white Christian Europeans. In fact, it's already been weaponized by the alt-right and far-right as a reason to target Muslims today, and dismissed by the far-left as an unnecessary discussion that trivializes the African slave trade and strengthens the alt-right cause. How you respond says a lot about your politics. But that doesn't mean that it has to be politicized. It doesn't have to offend. It certainly doesn't have to be weaponized. I'm not trying to both sides this one. History can be political. But the mere existence of historical fact shouldn't be. How we respond to the past tells us how we respond to current events in the present, and more importantly, it can help us respond with wisdom in the present. 
The truth is, Barbary Coast slavery was horrific. It was violent. And it was much more complicated than simply race or religion. It was nothing like the Atlantic slave trade. People were taken from their homes by criminals to be sold in a tangled mess of economic and religious warfare. At its core, though, it was about criminals making money. How they made it was an afterthought. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. Slavery has been part of human history since its inception. Historian Robert Davis adequately put it, quote, Slavery had been practiced since the earliest histories in both places, its roots going deep into both the classical cultures of Egypt, Greece, and Rome, as well as the American Indian empires in Mexico and Central America. Yet it was only at the beginning of the modern age that slavery in each of these regions took a leap in quality and quantity until both became institutions of large scale and high efficiency. End quote. Slavery as an institution differs depending on the circumstances of the time period and the location, and I think we all understand that on its face. You can conjure up an image of a slave from many time periods. Aesop, Spartacus, Frederick Douglass. Even today, there are still somewhere in the ballpark of 20 to 40 million people enslaved around the globe. Slavery is a human condition. But when we think of early modern European history, we think of slavery as primarily European, entrenched in the Atlantic slave trade in which African slaves were sold to colonies in the Americas. And that's true. During the 18th century, it was where the majority of slaves were sent around the world. But in the 16th and 17th centuries, Mediterranean slavery outproduced the transatlantic trade. And that's not considering the slave trade in the Levant and Eastern Europe. Both Christian nation-states and Muslim states participated in the Mediterranean slave trade, buying and selling slaves, and their targets were each other. Historian Robert Davis writes, quote, Slave-hunting corsair galleys, both Christian and Muslim, roamed throughout the Mediterranean, seeking their human booty from Catalonia to Egypt, men and women, Turks and Moors, Jews and Catholics, Protestants and Orthodox, all were potential victims to be seized and eventually herded into the slave pens of Constantinople, Algiers, Tunis, Tripoli, Malta, Naples, Livorno. End quote. In the Mediterranean, slavery was a commercial market on both sides of the sea. Christians in Spain, Italy, and Portugal had no problem enslaving thousands of captives from Turkish and Muslim lands, and the North African cities had no problem doing the same back. But in terms of numbers it was lopsidedly against the lands of the Habsburg Christians. The expulsion of the Moors to North Africa in 1492 created a conscious attempt to attack Christendom, especially those under the Habsburg crown, by raiding coastal communities, attacking European merchant shipping, and taking slaves. There was an element of jihad, which had been called for by the Turkish government against the Habsburgs, explicitly at the end of the 1400s, for the wrongs of 1492, the centuries of crusading violence, and the ongoing religious struggle between Christians and Muslims, and both piracy and slavery were policy instruments in that struggle. An important, oft-forgotten purpose to the taking of slaves on coastal Europe is kind of obvious once you think about it. These are factions at war. Every citizen is a potential soldier. 
a potential producer. Not only does capturing them deprive the enemy, but then if the enemy wants them back, they need to pay an economic sum to get them back. All the while, the Muslim world can use them as a source of continual labor and income. Under those circumstances, why would you pass up the opportunity? In fact, it's tempting to argue that the whole Mediterranean slave trade was primarily about religious warfare. But those were important reasons for why Christians were targeted by Muslims and vice versa, but primarily, the slave trade was about money. The kingdoms that overwhelmingly participated in the slave trade were the pirate cities along the North African coastline, Algiers, Tripoli, and Tunis. Algiers and other cities on the Barbary Coast are not what we think of as North African the same way as today. If anything, they were metropolitan, this diverse group of cities consisting of white European slaves, Janissaries, renegades, Moors, Berbers, and Jews. Originally, these cities were part of a vast Ottoman Empire that ruled the Muslim world, which is why it was so metropolitan. They participated in the taking of slaves as part of the wars waged by the Turkish government against the Christian nations, and the corsairs were the kings of it. Contemporary observers called it man-taking, or Christian-stealing. English consul to Tripoli, Thomas Baker, once noted sourly, quote, to steal Christians is their lawful vocation, end quote. This raiding and slaving would be done in large forces of corsairs, sometimes numbering 100 galleys, totaling 10,000 soldiers. This was a large enough force that they could sack just about any middle-sized city on the coast, blockading large cities such as Naples and Genoa, threatening even Rome itself. But as the Habsburg-Ottoman Wars died down, the Ottomans confined their main armies around the Levant, leaving North African cities to fare for themselves in the name of the Ottoman Empire. By the 17th century, even the city governments had stopped sponsoring annual marauding raids, which left corsair slaving to freebooter fleets only numbering a few galleys at a time. They began to target single ships rather than sack and sire cities, and operated within the protection of their local pashas. If in the 16th century, the Barbary corsairs had operated their raids because of jihad, by the 17th century, it had become a free enterprise. Now, the Barbary Coast slavers were unlike the European slavers in the Atlantic slave trade. In the Atlantic trade, slavers were specialists. They did nothing but transport and sell slaves. The African states in Africa itself specialized in the capture of those slaves and transporting them to the coast, but the Europeans only bought those slaves and moved them across the Atlantic. So, as Davis puts it, quote, the Atlantic slave trade was running a true trade. By contrast, this corsair Christian stealing was more fundamentally extractive by nature, a king of Islamic gold rush aimed at the poorly defended shores and shipping of the Christian world. End quote. The Barbary corsairs were more of a vast enterprise that had no diversification. They captured, supplied, transported, and distributed the whole Mediterranean market. And they were a democratic lot. Any individual who wished to go on a raid could join as long as there were enough investors to provide the necessary capital for galley labor and provisions, they were good to go. And there was no shortage of potential volunteers. Many of the crew didn't even sign on for wages. I mean, why would you? If you're plundering, you're going to be earning your wages and how much you take. Many men would just sign up for a fixed share of the loot once it was divvied up. This is where it becomes important to understand the Barbary Coast slave trade as fundamentally different from the Atlantic slave trade. There was no racial element to their slave trade. By the 17th century, even the religious element took a backseat to the lure of riches. A good haul would make everyone wealthy, even the galley slaves who were forced to row the ships. 
they might make enough money to buy their own freedom. The biggest hurdle was the necessary skill and luck in taking enough slaves to make a good haul. Only one out of every 20 ships would bring in enough slaves to be worth about $100,000 today, but a full 15% would come back without a single slave. Considering that most ships made one to four voyages a year, those two extremes could mean opulence or ruin. This meant that the pursuit of slaves was a ferocious affair in the Barbary Coast, certainly more than on the Atlantic trade, because at least there some startup capital protected a ship from a bad haul of slaves. In corsair slavery, no such capital existed. Thus, quote, If one wished to explain the ferocity and tenacity with which the Barbary Corsairs so famously pursued their Christian victims, it is well worthwhile to start here, with the financial situation in which so many found themselves. Not only were many of them perpetually on the brink of ruin, but all were fully aware of the fabulous wealth that their more fortunate brethren had won. End quote. Now, the other factor to the Barbary Corsair slave trade is that element we discussed at the beginning, that it involved literally descending on victims and hauling them away. Unlike the Atlantic slave trade in which Europeans bought their slaves on the coasts from other African groups that had already enslaved, the Barbary pirates did the dirty work themselves. In the beginning, during the jihad phase of the slave trade, the Barbary pirates focused their efforts on coastal raids, taking thousands of people. In 1544, Algerian corsairs took over 7,000 captives from around the Bay of Naples in a single raid. In 1554, the sack of Vieste led to 6,000 being carted off. In 1566, 4,000 people were seized in Granada. Coastal hamlet towns would flee towards the larger provincial cities to escape the assault of these pirate raids, which only lended the cities themselves to become a larger target. These towns, in turn, would then flee out of their walls as villagers would be fleeing in. For example, in 1623, a rumor that raiders were targeting Gaeta sent them, quote, fleeing for the hills as fast as they could. They buried in the dung heaps here and there their jewels, riches, gold, and silver. Only to convince the Turks that they had nothing, they even threw their own beds into the wells, end quote. Corsairs relied heavily on subterfuge for these assaults because an open fight was the last thing they wanted. That would lead to widespread destruction on their potential slaves. Literally, it would be destroying their possible financial goods for market. Watchtower and bells were of concern because there are so many towers to begin with. Over 500 guarded southern Italy and the islands alone. That's a rate of one every five miles of coastline, with cannons and signal fires. If a single watchtower spotted a Corsair navy, they would light the flame, and the next tower would see them and light theirs, like something out of Lord of the Rings or Milan. So the element of surprise was their best bet, and they were good at it. There's even a Sicilian idiom today, taken by the Turks, literally to be caught by surprise. Corsairs would use their own slaves to gather intelligence from the area. On fear of torture, the allurement of freedom, sometimes even the obtainment of their own slaves, these slaves would give up what information they had of the area. Sometimes, corsairs would disguise their ships as Christian by changing the markings, banners, and rigging, to make sure none of the oarsmen themselves, often Christian slaves, would let up a shout to warn the dock workers as they sailed into port, they would gag them with, quote, a morsel of cork that they carry for this purpose, hung about their necks like a reliquary sack. End quote. They would slip into fishing fleets in the early foggy mornings in small galleys and boats, often getting so close that they would send men, quote, 
to remove the ropes from church bells so they could not be sounded, end quote. And of course, if the bell started ringing early in the morning when they weren't expected, pandemonium would set in. It worked to their advantage. This surprise was universally one of the greatest fears for southern Europeans, because people 10 or 20 miles inland could find themselves captured. Some sleepy vineyard could be accosted in a moment's notice. It could be fishermen, coastal guards, lumberjacks, farmers, merchants, and in their pursuit, pirates would engage in the same activities as most other naval raiding parties throughout history. The destruction of property, defenses, food storage, religious shrines, the like. They even went so far as to dig up the bones of saints and burn them outside the walls of cities. One Sicilian villager commented, quote, They grabbed young women and children, they snatched goods and money, and in a flash, back aboard their galleys, they set their course and vanished. End quote. After the initial raid, the raiders would return under a white flag to negotiate the ransom of their slaves. Davis points out that this was one of the fundamental features of corsair slaving compared to the Atlantic slave trade. He writes, quote, here the essentially extractive nature of Mediterranean slaving reveals itself, for even if these new captured slaves might go for deeply discounted prices compared to what they could fetch in the slave markets of Algiers or Tunis, the corsairs still found it easier to convert them to cash immediately, rather than risk them dying or overloading the galleys on the way back to Barbary. End quote. Relatives would have a single day to cobble together the necessary funds to free their family members, and even at a rate of sometimes only 20% of what they would fetch in the slave markets, the peasants of Italy could rarely come up with those funds overnight. Sometimes they would turn to speculators who would put up the 50 ducats for a slave in exchange for property deeds, essentially turning a profit off of the kidnapping and abduction of Italians. As such, these families, already poor, would receive their loved ones with literally nothing left to their name. Sometimes they would even be forced laborers on the property they owned that very morning, forced to work for the freedom that they had taken for granted less than 12 hours before, its own form of slavery. But by the end of the 16th century, cities were growing too large and were well defended, and the Ottoman Empire was increasingly unreliant on the slave trade, so the Barbary cities turned to isolated shipping. This isn't to say they hadn't before. Throughout the slave trade, the corsairs did most of their enslaving at sea. They would capture a vessel and take between 8 and 12 people. In fact, Davis speculates, quote, petty piracy probably cost Christendom more in slaves and booty over the long run than all the spectacular coups taken together, end quote. This was primarily because the Barbary pirates operated using the galley instead of the sailing ship. The galley was the primary ship of the Mediterranean as it sailed quickly relative to, say, the open ocean of the Atlantic. At the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, 80,000 rowers were part of the battle on both sides, Christian and Muslim, and the vast majority were slaves. These galleys would house a couple hundred oarsmen, and this literal manpower meant that they could ambush and quickly overwhelm almost any other ship with a sail. Sometimes fishing ships would be taken literally within sight of the harbor. Onlookers would watch in dismay as the pirates were sighted on the horizon, quickly closed, took over the ship, and carted off their neighbors and relatives in a matter of minutes. If one of these vessels was caught unawares, there was no way they could outrun a corsair galley. Their sails simply could not compete with oarsmen. The only two choices to escape was either ramming their boat onto the shore, if they were close enough, or jumping overboard 
and swimming in the open ocean to land. And even then, sometimes the Corsair galleys would pursue them instead of actually trying to board the ship. Because remember, they are the financial gain. Although most of commercial ships traveled in convoys, it was common for a single ship to fall behind. And if the wind died down, and a ship was stranded at sea, the Corsair galleys still operating by ore power could fall upon their victim. If the merchants didn't abandon ship the moment the pirates would appear, they would engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And again, that could be dicey for both sides. Corsairs didn't want their booty harmed. So, most of the time, Corsairs relied on deceit to close with their intended victims. They would even engage in dressing their own men in European clothing, calling out in European to the vessels they intended to board until they were close enough to jump. By the 18th century, when treaties of non-interference began to come into play in which some Corsairs agreed with major European nations not to engage in piracy in exchange for vast bribes, those who didn't have a treaty would disguise themselves as those who did. Now, most of these vessels that were attacked were supposed to be enemies of the Turks, so that meant the Spanish, the Portuguese, the allied cities in Italy, the Knights of Malta, but theoretically any vessel, even neutral ones that resisted a Corsair galley, was subject to attack. So if the Corsairs hauled your vessel in and it was somewhere like France or England, even refusing to let them on board for an inspection could be interpreted as resistance. For example, French cleric Jean-Baptiste Gramet's vessel was hailed by a Corsair ship. When they submitted themselves for inspection, they accused him of being a Spaniard. He protested, quote, that I don't know a single word of that language, at which they whipped me with blows of rope to the head, swearing that they would teach it to me well. Then hearing me speak French, and seemingly willing to believe that I had nothing in common with Spain, they instead insisted that I was a Jew. End quote. Should any accidents like this occur, theoretically enslaved persons would be protected once they reached the ports of Barbary and formal complaints could be lodged with their Turkish government in Constantinople. But realistically, these consulates did not exist until the 1600s, and even then, it could take months for approval, by which point impatient slaveries would already have sold their slaves. Barbary pirates also targeted wealthy individuals because most of their money wouldn't come from selling them into slavery. It would come from ransom. Corsairs targeted officers in the hopes that they would reveal where loot was hidden on a ship, a common occurrence that both merchants and passengers would take to in case of capture. Merchant ships were more likely to yield richer ransoms, from noblemen to clerics. As such, most wise passengers would let on little about themselves to their captain or passengers in case they were unlucky enough to be boarded. Which kind of puts basically every naval story I've ever read into focus. You know the trope, the hidden identity among one of the crewmen? Well, that existed during these times. Bishops would disguise themselves as lowly priests and nobles as sailors. In one boarding incident, some Venetian passengers from Tripoli, quote, threw the better part of their silver money, flashy dress suits, gilded swords, embroidered belts, boots, letters, and other indicators of wealth and quality helter-skelter into the sea, end quote. And, just like the trope, often nobles would be outed by other crewmen or passengers, or found hiding some coin or jewel on themselves. When a ship was first boarded, corsairs would ransack it, smashing trunks and stealing booty. Any passenger who protested or resisted would be beaten, tortured, even killed. Whipping the soles of the feet was common because they would not visibly scar a passenger in a way that might be easily visible in the slave market, yet it would really hurt and do damage. And the knotted rope was the common tool used for this, sometimes dipped in tar. 
captives would be forced to strip naked in order to reveal any valuables they had on their person or if they were circumcised. Jewish men in particular were prized, as their ransoms were often higher with their families. If a passenger knew something or was suspected of knowing something, he would be tortured in front of the crew. They would cane him along his buttocks, stomach, feet, and lower back, quote, almost enough to break the kidneys, end quote. When the corsairs finally relented and left the ship, captives could find themselves on the oars within minutes of departure. One captive, Jan Stroys, wrote, quote, They put me in the galley, stripped off my robes, shaved my head, and set me to an oar, which was work enough for six of us to tug at, end quote. Those who weren't would be chained together below deck. Gramey wrote of his imprisonment, quote, We were chained together in heaps and thrust up like herrings in the bottom of the ship to be kept for the buthery or market, end quote. In such conditions, it's unsurprising many died en route back to port. Their bodies were just tossed into the sea, and it could take months before the enslaved victims reached the Barbary coast. When they would get to the cities, the slaves would be paraded through the town. The residents would come out of their homes and line the streets to jeer and throw refuse at them. One slave, John Foss, recounted, quote, We were rowed on shore and landed amidst the shouts and huzzas of thousands of malicious barbarians. As we passed through the streets, our ears were stunned with shouts, clapping of hands, and other acclamations of joy from the inhabitants, thanking God for their great success and victory over so many Christian dogs and unbelievers. End quote. One pasha commented to Foss, quote, Now I have got you, you Christian dogs. You shall eat stones. End quote. A period of time would pass, depending on how long it would take to get them to market. Once they were ready to sell, they would be lined up with shaved heads in their original clothes. They would be haggled over. They might be asked where they came from or what they did in their previous life. If a buyer was unsure of the physical condition of a slave, they would be stripped naked. This was especially true if they were to be used for hard labor or sex. They would examine their teeth to decide the age and health, shake their arms and legs to make sure they weren't lame. They would clasp their palms, believing that they could tell their potential through palm reading and the markings, or lack thereof, on the skin. Others would check for ear piercings, as they were regularly worn by the wealthy. Experienced buyers learned the telltale signs of age. Quote, they go by general conjectures from the beard, face, or hair, but a good set of teeth will make one ten years younger and a broken one ten years older than the truth. End quote. Buyers would force them to jump around, quote, to test the elasticity of their limbs and form a fist to test their grip, end quote. Nationality could factor into the price of a slave. Frenchmen were often sold cheap because they typically were the poorest captives, but the Spanish often were just as low, simply because they were associated with the Habsburg crown and thus were enemies of the Muslim world. One European remarked of the experience, quote, Oh, says the seller, Mark what a back he has, what a breadth between the shoulders, what a chest, how strong set, how fitted nonce for burdens. He'll do, nay, but too much work. End quote. Slaves with particular skills often hid their skill set from prying questions, as the likelihood of accumulating enough money for a ransom fell if an owner felt his slave was high in value. As such, Buyers swap knowledge of slave skills or abilities behind their back, often lying to the competitors to get other buyers to agree to exorbitant amounts. 
the highest bidder would get the slave, and they would be given over to their new master. Once slaves were sold, they would often be turned around and rented out for undemanding labor while they waited for ransom money to come in. Private slaves were better treated, sometimes even owning their own slaves and running businesses, but that was a small amount. Some lower-class slaves, who could never expect to be ransomed, might be bought by janissaries or local governments for a bevy of tasks ranging from household service to personal servitude. They could be found playing instruments in orchestras, fetching bread, and taking care of the household's children. They might even serve as rental slaves in European consulates and Christian missions, serving other free Europeans. Often slaves were left with free time, with which they could earn their own wage to eventually pay off their ransom. But the majority were not so lucky. This was especially true with public slaves, most of them unskilled workers. They were the group of slaves forced to labor in the Regency's cities. They would quarry and drag rock to the city walls, or harbor, or row the galleys in the exposed sun until they died on the benches. At night, they were fed moldy black bread and forced to pay for drinking water. Some slaves would be forced into the shipbuilding industry, one of the worst labors enslaved peoples could find themselves in. Every evening, they would be confined with hundreds of other slaves in a matamoro, a dug pit in the earth with a single opening in the ceiling. One priest described it as, quote, a dark and gloomy place, full of the worst smells, and every sort of filth, those poor slaves being one on top of the other, and the place is so constricted and lacking sufficient air to breathe that it sometimes happens that, leaving in the morning from that grave and feeling the outside air, some fall to the earth, dead." End quote. Barbary slavers also had an open homosexual culture, and slaves were sometimes forced into male prostitution. In fact, Davis writes, quote, One should recognize, as contemporary observers did, that many, if not most, Christian slaves came from such impoverished backgrounds that no one in Barbary seriously thought of holding them for ransom, much less lending them money to start a shop or open a tavern, end quote. So, the majority of slaves were worked to death. They weren't investments. They were consumables to be spent and thrown away. But by far, the worst place to end up was back on the galleys. Davis makes this clear when he writes, quote, It was the galleys that came to epitomize slavery for white Europeans in Barbary, much as the cutting cane did among Africans laboring in the Americas. End quote. The worst off slaves, and a very large majority of them, were those with little talent. If they were peasants or common folk, they ended up in the galleys. There, they would be thrown with prisoners criminals, and sometimes paid workers to row. Oarsmen would be shackled together three or four at a time on a bench for the duration of the trip. The conditions were grueling. Quote, When the ship was idle, slaves who needed to relieve themselves could make their way to the opening at the whole side of the bench, known as the borda, dragging their part of the chain and presumably climbing over their sleeping companions. This, however, many slaves were apparently too exhausted or dispirited to do, and often ended up simply fouling themselves where they sat. The resulting stench, as many observers agreed, was beyond belief. But besides the fumes in which they labored, the shackled gayolti were also tormented by rats, fleas, bedbugs, and other parasites. End quote. They were expected to sleep their three or four hours 
sitting at the bench, and eat their meals of gruel and vinegar water while rowing. All of this in the sun, with no shirt to shield them from the searing UV rays. If that wasn't enough, they could be expected to be pushed onward by the soldiers who wielded a bull's pizzle, literally a dried and stretched bull's penis, which was used to whip them ceaselessly. One galley captain would load his ship with 50 big sticks for discipline, but after only two weeks, only one stick remained. The rest had been broken from the severe beatings the slaves had been subjected to. Slave Joseph Morgan commented, quote, To behold ranks and files of half-naked, half-starved, half-tanned, meager wretches, chained to a plank, from which they remove not for months together, urged on even beyond human strength, with cruel and repeated blows on the bare flesh, to an incessant continuation of the most violent of all exercises. End quote. Those that became sick or died on the galley were thrown into the sea, whether they still were alive or not. As such, the galley was used as a tool of fear by masters and buyers, much the same way the Deep South was used as a tool to force African-American slaves in the border states to cow to their owner's demands. And there really is a tragic irony in the idea of being worked to death as a slave in order to help capture more slaves. As French cleric Philemon de la Motte said, quote, As for the slaves at Algiers, they are not indeed so unhappy, but still they are slaves, always hated on account of their religion, incessantly overburdened with labor. End quote. Slaves primarily died from abuse overwork, lack of food, and despair. As one Neapolitan captain wrote home from Tennis, quote, We are mistreated, beaten with sticks, starved, and called faithless dogs, such that I would willingly die, and God alone knows what would happen. End quote. This was especially true in the Bagnos, the public open prisons in the cities. By the late 1700s, half of all slaves were part of the Bagnos. One historian, Stephen Clissold, described life in it as a cross between a Nazi concentration camp, an English debtor's prison, and a Soviet labor camp. They were, quote, frightful prisons where these poor people are more packed together one on top of the other than lodged. These are places of horror where the smoke of the cooking that transpires on every side, the noise, the cries, the blows, and the tumult reign everywhere, end quote. Now, if you try to escape this nightmare, slaves would be caught and could expect for their ears or nose to be cut off or given several hundred whippings to their feet, which would cripple them for life. Sometimes they were even executed. But while these punishments were not common, they were randomized. They were meant to be used to prove a point to the rest of the population. They were a warning, curbing an appetite for flight or mutiny. Another particular problem that slaves had to deal with was the plague, Although it had peaked in the 14th century, it continued to ravage the Mediterranean coast for hundreds of years. Sometimes a third of all the people in the city would be killed off and the slaves would be the ones hit hardest as a result of their close quarters and malnourishment. With all of these different forms of abuse, punishment, and death, it's no wonder that mortality rate among the slaves in the Barbary coast was around 15-20% to 20% a year. So how does one get out of this predicament? 
Well, if a group of slaves was lucky enough, their home country would be willing to ransom them out. Around once a year, a major country such as Spain would buy back a thousand or so men, women, and children. But overall, on average, this was only 2% of the slave population. Slaves could also renounce Christianity and embrace Islam. By doing so, they would be afforded many more rights, and although their slave status would remain the same, their quality of living would increase, and the likelihood they would be set free would as well. A full 40% of slaves chose this exit. Priests, in particular, were targeted as possible converts, as many were used to living in a greater luxury than the common people. I think it's a little ironic that those who weren't ransomed quickly often converted even quicker. One British seaman in 1640 put it, quote, With all suffering much hunger, with many blows on our bare bodies, with which their cruelty many, not being able to undergo, have been forced to turn to their Mahometist sect and devilish paganism, end quote. Even so, most of them would remain slaves for a period of time, and even if they did have any belief in their Christian soul, it certainly stood to reason that it was now forfeit. Slaves could try to get a message out, but they probably didn't have money for paper, much less enough money to send it. One message, written by Francesco Antonio Assange, ended his letter by explaining he had lacked the money to buy ink, so he instead used his own blood, pulled from his arm, to write the letter. One Venetian shipbuilder who was captured lamented, quote, "...among the sorrows of severe slavery, I have dwelt for the course of 26 years, while never being able to get word through about the news of my disaster, to my only sister, who I believed was dead." End quote. Now, if a letter did arrive, families would have to write to relations and friends for money, taking loans and selling their livestock and farms. Back home, husbandless families would become suddenly ostracized, mocked, scorned. Women might take another husband, but as we've seen on this podcast with Martin Guerre, if the original husband turns back up alive, the woman now has to deal with the legal and religious implications of having two husbands, and at least one of those is an unlawful marriage. In the early years, one might be able to set about slave exchanges. Muslim slaves in Europe could be exchanged for Christian slaves in Africa. But as the slave trade on the Christian Mediterranean side dwindled and the Ottoman Empire withdrew, this all but evaporated. Thus, by the later half of the 16th century, an entire social movement was born in Europe of ransoming slaves. Religious orders, such as the Trinitarians and Our Lady of Mercy, originally spearheaded this charity, but states soon began to follow suit. States such as Naples and Rome founded co-fraternities explicitly for this purpose. However, only Sicily of all the cities leveraged attacks against its citizens to fund their co-fraternity. The rest of the cities still relied on public charity for funding through the circulation of almsgiving by friars and priests, and thus, because unfortunately most people were not willing to give their money, most of these slaves remained that way until they died. Corsair raids and slavery continued all the way into the early 20th century. It took a nosedive when the Barbary Wars were instigated in the early 19th century by the Americans, the British, and the Dutch, and it forced the Barbary Coast cities to agree to cessation of their slave trade. But they continued to operate, albeit in much, much smaller numbers, until the emancipation of the slave trade in Europe. But by that time, the damage was done to Southern Europe. Between 1530 and 1640 alone, over a million Europeans were put into chains, 
with the number possibly as high as a million and a quarter over the 250 years. Now, this number is only 10% of the number of Africans enslaved in the Atlantic slave trade, but it's also, importantly, still a million and a quarter living souls. This comes back to the discussion of slavery in our modern context. So often, it's become a political tool used by parties to bandy about their moral superiority. Your party participated in slavery. Well, your party would have agreed to it back in the first place. But let's just stop for a moment. Set aside the politics. Every person who has ever been enslaved in history has had their life irrevocably changed, harmed, destroyed. Slavery is a national trauma. It certainly was a national trauma in Southern Europe. One historian called it the era of the Sea of Fear. Many countries turned away from the coasts. In Italy, where Davis did most of his research, many moved to the countryside. One Italian essayist put it, quote, We retired to the countryside. We lost our freedom and our love of the sea. We are no longer a nation of navigators, although we did become a nation of bathers. End quote. But not everyone could afford to leave. Many of the poor were forced to continue working in a place where there is this constant real dread of being up and vanished at any moment. One Venetian slave, upon returning to his town, picked his job back up as a fisherman. He stated, quote, I'm forced to do this work. I don't know any other. We boarded a ship back to Venice, where we arrived stripped and naked, and I especially, if I had not gone out to another voyage, I would have had nothing to live on. End quote. So Southern Europeans were forced to live, as one historian put it, with a fear of the horizon. That is the fear every person who has lived with the threat of enslavement has had to exist under. Think about that. Whether African or European or Southeast Asian or Indian or Native American, millions of people have lived their entire lives with the possibility that at any moment it could be yanked out from under them. That's not political, that's human. Now, if I'm going to be honest, this topic really resonated with me, and a lot of it came down to, honestly, something I'm going to do with a little bit of public shaming of myself. Because when I was first hearing about this topic, I'll be honest, I thought it was interesting right off the onset, because it is. This whole idea of piracy and, of course, your slaving thrown together, it's interesting. But I'll be honest, I immediately threw in my model of the Atlantic slave trade, of what I thought of as slavery, and thought to myself, wow, what a turnabout. It's almost like a Django Unchained sort of narrative where it's like, you know, the, the tables have turned. And I had to catch myself because that, that's the wrong way to go about thinking about history and especially about slavery. I've tried to connect the past few episodes to topics to action in the present day. And the reason why I, I felt the need to, to say something was because it still resonates throughout the world. As I said in the top, Millions of people still live as slaves today, and part of what researching this episode did for me was not just that it opened my eyes to different forms of slavery. I knew those existed. I think we all understand that, but it really brought the topic home when I started to realize just how many people still are enslaved today. The majority of modern slaves exist in India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, in Uzbekistan, most of them is forced labor, but it's still all over the world. Mauritania in North Africa today, for example, still enslaves over 20% of its population for forced labor. ISIL, Boko Haram, and 
other militant organizations in Africa and the Middle East are continuously abducting children and women to be sold into sex slavery, warping the Hadith for their own cause. But maybe you're like me, maybe that seems like it's something that's far off and not a reality. So if you're a citizen in an industrialized country listening to this, guess what? Your country still deals with it too. In fact, it's possibly the biggest part of the problem. Half of all income from modern human trafficking comes from industrialized countries. In the United States alone, the figure ranges from 100,000 to 400,000 people currently, most due to forced labor, prostitution, and marriage. You know what really threw me for a loop? In my state of Ohio alone, almost 500 cases were reported last year, and that's just reported, which means that the reality is Within my commuting distance, there are thousands of people currently living in slavery. Almost all of these are women, children, Native Americans, and homeless. That's up to one out of every 1,000 people living in the United States, and most of these are citizens. Unless you think it's a U.S. problem, the U.K. has had 14,000 women and children trafficked into their country in the past decade, and that's just a number that's as small as 10% of the true numbers. So... Discussion of slavery should not remain in the past. It certainly shouldn't remain in the realm of political theater. And so we're going to do something a little bit different today to end this episode. This is a real problem. Millions of people are still suffering for it. I hope that talking about the Barbary Coast has at least elicited some empathy. But that's empathy for people in the past who are dead and gone. But we can channel that empathy today. If this is a real problem, and millions of people are suffering for it, many of them in the cities we live in, what can we do about it? So first, you can donate to one of the multiple groups working to free people from modern slavery all around the world. The Polaris Project and Thorn are just two of the nonprofits working hard to free enslaved people and compile more data to present to governments, hopefully to get them to start enacting legislation to help support victims and catch criminals. Second, if you live in the United States, you might be surprised, or not surprised, that the support framework we have in place for victims is razor thin. We only just passed legislation criminalizing human trafficking in the year 2000. Our current presidential administration has defunded legal services for trafficking victims that are typically provided through the Victim of Crimes Office at the Department of Justice. 90% of traffic victims are found when they are arrested doing something illegal like prostitution or drugs, because they were forced into it. Now, the Victim of Crimes Office would fund their legal defense because obviously they were being forced into these occupations. That's why they were slaves, to do illegal stuff against their will. That funding has now been taken. Victims are barred financial assistance for federal programs because they were part of a crime, a crime they were forced into against their will. President Trump has also revoked the T-Visa, which provided foreign-born victims a visa so that they could live here while legal proceedings occurred. It allowed them to come forward without fear of deportation, a real fear, because so often their very lives could be at stake if they were deported back to their home country, so now they are forced to choose between slavery and their possible lives. Sounding the alarm on backpedaling like this is key because the major way we find out about human trafficking is when a victim comes forward, and if we're not going to protect victim rights, then we're going to have trouble even identifying human trafficking rings in the United States. 
And finally, if you believe someone has been the victim of forced labor, prostitution, marriage, or another form of slavery, call the National Hotline for Human Trafficking at 1-888-373-7888 or text 233-733. If this feels like a weird way to end a podcast about history, what's supposed to be educational entertainment, yeah, I agree. But you know what? Think about this. What's the point of learning history if we don't use it to take action? What's the point of learning about history if all we're going to do is say, wow, that's awful, and then unplug our phone, or queue up the next podcast, or go back to our chores? What's the point of learning history? It's not entertainment. You and I can be the difference we want to see in the world. History isn't something for the textbooks. It's alive in all of us. Our knowledge of the past helps empower our actions in the present. We can change lives. So let's do something today. If the actions above seemed like too much work, then at least talk to someone about it. Start a conversation. Share it on social media. Because people need to know, slavery isn't in the past. It's part of our present. And as is becoming a recurrent warning at the end of these episodes, if we don't do something about it, it's going to remain in our future. High Crimes and History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesandhistory.com. 